You're listening to And Then Some, a conversation with diverse thought leaders across sectors and the media, where we explore strategic communications, current trends, and how they impact us all. This podcast is presented by Solomon McCown and Sensi, an award-winning, fully integrated PR and government relations agency. This is And Then Some. Hi, everyone. I'm Reva Chessis. And I'm TJ Winnick, and this is And Then Some. Our guest today is Beth Chandler, president and CEO of YW Boston, a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating more inclusive environments where women, people of color, and especially women of color can succeed. Beth has more than two decades of experience in both the corporate and nonprofit sectors, having previously held positions at the Achievement Network, a national nonprofit dedicated to closing the achievement gap in public and charter schools, as well as the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation, NeighborWorks America, and Bank of America. Needless to say, we feel very fortunate she's lending us some of her time today. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, we really appreciate you stopping by. And we haven't even mentioned that you attended Harvard and then Columbia for your MBA. You've had a really fascinating post-college career. And I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing about what you have felt have been some of the major turning points, either in college or afterwards, that led you to where you are now. Can you shed some light on that? I would say there are a few things that have led me to where I am today. Part of that was being a younger child. So I grew up uh, a younger kid. I have an older brother. Uh, I have older cousins. And I always, you know, was trying to, to do what they were doing, right? And always wanted to prove myself and say, I could do it too. I could do it too. And so I think that's always given me, uh, always want, I always wanted to support the underdog. Right. And uh, to think of those who are being left out. And so I think that is part part of what led me to be where I am is wanting to help those that have been left out for no fault of their own. Right. And part of that, again, is being a younger kid. Um, I think two other experiences have certainly influenced where I am. And one of that is having been in nonprofit had organizations that existed really because of systemic issues. And I couldn't always articulate what was going on, but I could see the end result, which was often that it was people of color, it was immigrants, it was you know people that were often marginalized, uh, from marginalized identities that were often getting services and support from the nonprofits that I worked for. And I knew working with folks that there was nothing wrong with people, right? And everybody was qualified and certainly some folks had challenges but by and large, people, there was something else going on that was leading people to the outcomes that they were having. And so um, that was something that really drove me, I think, to wanting to work at, at YW Boston. Um, and the other part of it for me is I uh, was fired twice in my career. Um, and being fired is really devastating. And even now, when I think about it, I still, you know, start thinking of the shame spiral that, you know, I was going on internally. Um, and that also helped me realize through those experiences um, sort of what really was motivating for me and what I valued. And for both of those organizations, part of the reason I took those roles was because of the money. Right. And I had, you know, that drove me in part to take roles at organizations that really weren't a good fit for things that were passions for me and real true interests for me. Um, and so I learned from those experiences that I needed to be in a place where I was really driven by 
the mission of the organization. And so I think all of those things led me to want to work in an organization like YW Boston, where they were really interested in understanding and addressing what were systemic issues that were getting in the way of people being successful, and particularly people who identified as people of color and identified as women. Um, And that really resonated with me because it was important for me to be in an organization that wasn't blaming people for their outcomes, but was looking at what's happening in the systems that might be able to be changed so that everybody could thrive. I love that answer, especially just the idea that, you know, you could get fired from a job and your life, your career isn't over. You know, sometimes that could be a really helpful piece of a larger puzzle. So thank you for for telling us a little bit more about that. You know, we know one of the main focus areas for YW Boston is DE&I training. And we're curious in your opinion, when it comes to DE&I training and education, do you think it's more important to be a good communicator or a good listener? That's a great question. And the answer is both. Right? You need to both be a good communicator and a good listener. Um, in order to be, I think, successful in this work and to be able to help people move through their own DE&I journey to be successful. And so part of it is being able to communicate what the different issues might be, what the different systems are. I think often people feel that it's their fault or there's something wrong with them. When we hear, you know, there's a you know systemic racism and people hear the word racism and all of a sudden it's I'm not a bad person, so I can't really be part of this or perpetuating this. And so, you know, being able to communicate how this is a system that we're all a part of, I think, is important so that people can start distancing themselves from making a judgment as to whether they're good or bad and understanding, again, that it's a system we're all a part of and that we all can make change. And then I think being able to listen, right? Oftentimes we say things, but the real meaning is below sometimes what we're saying. And it's important to keep asking questions and digging below the surface to really get at sometimes what are the root causes? Because it's very easy to look at the outcomes and say, oh, well, it must be X, right? But if you don't, and you might come up with a solution, but actually it's not going to be the right solution because you didn't ask enough questions and you didn't listen to really hear what are the problems. So I think that's also, you know, that's why it's both being a good communicator and a good listener, because you want to get at ultimately the root cause or challenges people are having to be able to come up with solutions that will get you to the outcomes that you want when it comes to DE&I. I have a sort of a follow-up on Reva's question. We we know the YW reaches a variety of stakeholders or uh, audiences, as we sometimes call them in, in communications, through your many service offerings and programs. We're curious about how the organization approaches D&I trainings with groups that have different characteristics based on, let's say, age of the average employee, the uh, industry that this organization exists in, or individuals' backgrounds. There's sort of the old expression that you need to meet people where they are. Does that hold up in your line of work or do you always have to begin from sort of a a common starting point? Yes, it is. It's, I think, very important in our work to meet people where they are. And as you shared, in every organization, people are different. They're on different journeys. They have, you know, some people have a, a very good understanding of what some of the challenges are. Some people don't, right? But all of that is within one organization. Um, and so it is important to meet people where they are to begin this work. And part of what we share with organizations, it's often important to think about you know, what is the the foundation that you want all employees to have? 
And so even though people may be at different places on this journey, how do you make sure that people have a common understanding of what's the language you're going to use internally? What are the frameworks that you'll be using to talk about this work? And also, why is it important? And I think often um, we don't always spend enough time on talking about why does this matter to the organization? And it has to be, I think, more than just the moral imperative for why this work is important, but what's the business imperative? Because if for this work to be successful, people have to change and organizations have to change. And change is extraordinarily difficult. And I often share the story that weight is something I have grappled with for you know all of my life. Uh, and it's not necessarily because I don't have enough knowledge about what I'm supposed to eat or that I don't know I'm supposed to exercise, right? I know all of that stuff, right? But the big thing is what is the thing that's going to motivate me to change my behavior to get a different outcome, right? And so you have to think about what's going to help people be able to sustain different behaviors to get to the outcome that you want. And part of that is, is understanding why for my organization does this matter? Why can I continue to do what I've been doing? Because I think I've been successful. I think the organization's been successful. So why does this DE&I thing matter, right? And so, so part of it is getting people within the organization to understand why it's important um, to the organization and for their success within the organization. And then understanding where are people getting stuck, right? What are the challenges? What are the fears? Sometimes when we do this work, people will say, you know, I understand that we should have a more diverse workforce, but in order to do that, it might mean we have to uh, hold our pools open longer because we're not getting diverse candidates, right? And I needed to hire somebody yesterday. So how am I going to be evaluated if my team is not performing on all cylinders because I haven't been able to fill the position because you say we need diverse candidates, but I'm not getting a diverse pool, right? That's a valid question, right? So how do you address, you know, people's concerns? So when there, again, has to be change, they understand why and how do you adapt for maybe it may take longer to hire somebody, but you're not going to get penalized because of that. Right. And so I think it's important um, to, to, as you said, TJ, meet people where they are in order to be successful doing this work. Thank you. It's a really great point about having a motivating factor really driving meaningful change. You know, DE&I is certainly not a new concept, but this past year, especially more employers and employees have been paying close attention to how their companies are creating inclusive workplaces, how they're addressing issues around equity and diversity, kind of being a lot more introspective with the opportunity that we've had sitting in our homes, seeing things like the Black Lives Matter movement take center stage and, and everything else. So we wanted to ask you actually about a recent study that we saw reported on by PR News, which found that while a significant majority of C-suite leaders considered DE&I crucial to reputation and recruitment and their bottom line, nearly 40% of those leaders say that DE&I is a waste of time and resources. So you touched on this a little bit, but how do you employ strong communication to really educate business leaders and young adults, you know, across the whole demographic that you work with on the importance of DE&I, why it matters, why they should feel motivated to, you know, make these changes with, within their companies? You know, we don't always spend a lot of time trying to change people's minds. Right. That's not always a good uh, way to, to use your time. Um, you're not going to change everybody's minds. People are entitled to their opinions and there are going to be some people, no, no matter what you say, no matter what data you show them, that they're going to believe that this is not important. Um, so I think it's 
again, more important to talk about, particularly as a leader of an organization, what is the value that you see for doing this work, right? And I think it's beyond just, you know, doing the right thing, but there has been data that shows that companies that do this and do it well perform and actually outperform their peers, But part of that is, you know, it's not just because you have people of color, you're now going to outperform your peers. It's because you have diverse people, whether it's, you know, race, uh, gender, ability, that you have different perspectives and you're able to make sure those folks feel a part of the organization. So you're getting to hear those perspectives and their point of view that leads you to 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 being more creative and to making better decisions that ultimately benefit your bottom line, right? So I think for organizations that get frustrated because it's harder for them to to hire diverse candidates and then they get some, and then they say, well, we're not performing better. They don't understand that it's not just because you have, you know, you can check a box on the numbers of people that fit certain categories, right? It's how are those folks feeling a part of your organization? And, you know, I can certainly talk to, you know, our leadership team, uh, we are all the same gender, um, but we have you know, three people that are what identifies white, two people of color. And because of people's different lived experiences, we, you know, get into some really you know, heated conversations because people have different lived experiences, but we always get to a much better uh, solution because we go through those conversations and are able to hear different perspectives and hear things that we may have missed. And we've worked with organizations who have said the same thing, where because they have more diverse perspectives at the table, they have identified new products that they hadn't thought about and that they have reached different audiences because they had uh, diverse employees that said, you know what, instead of using this product this way, let's use it this way because in my community, that would make a difference. And those organizations, you know, now have products that have greater appeal because they had folks on their teams that could provide that perspective to say, here's how, you know, a different community might use this. And they were able to make those changes and then have that product adopted. So, you know, it's not always easy, um, but I think there are, you know, plenty of examples that people can share that shows that it has been worthwhile for organizations to do this work. Beth, can I ask, you know, Reva cited that PR news survey, 40%, you know, claiming the work is a waste of time. Now that's not 50%, obviously, but it sounds like what you're saying is that there's a fundamental sort of misunderstanding amongst a certain number of C-suites as to what it means to fully embrace the work and to make sure that their organization is sort of imbued with these values. And I'm also wondering if it's because that this work that that you do is sort of in its infancy when you look at, right, you look at where we are now, you look at decades ago, general awareness around why this work is so important now. I mean, do you think there's still a lot of people that don't have a full grasp of, of what it means to really lean into this? Well, I think there are certainly people that don't understand what it is. Right. And we certainly have people saying in in workshops or other other work that we're doing. So does this mean we're not going to hire white men anymore? Right. Or that we're going to fire white men and replace them with some other category of people. And the answer is categorically no. We are not telling you. We never would say you do not hire white men anymore or white people anymore. Right. That is not the answer. The answer is to think about how do you ensure that you are able to have access to all qualified candidates, regardless of how they identify. 
right? And that you're hiring the best candidate and not just relying on, you know, you know, referrals from candidates, because we generally know people who look like us, that it's not that we're not, we're telling people not to hire certain groups or fire certain groups. It's just ensuring that everybody has an opportunity both to join your organization and to move up in your organization, because that's also where sometimes organizations get stuck. They do a great job in doing outreach and getting people in but then they don't pay any attention once people are in the organization. And when you look out, look at who's moving up in leadership, you see a you know, disparity between, you know, particularly people of color and women and how they're moving up versus men and white men within organizations. So it's, you know, as important to think about how are people being treated internally and moving up as it is to think about just getting them in your organization. And I think the other thing I'll just say about why I think folks are reluctant to this work is because they're afraid. Right. Talking about race is hard. Talking about our, our country and some of the challenges we have um, as a country around race is difficult. And so I think it is sometimes easier to avoid that conversation than to admit that there's maybe information or understandings you don't have um, and to you know have to change your perspective on how you think you know because a lot of you know we're all raised to think in this country you pick yourself up by your boots that bootstraps everybody has the same opportunities and that if you're not doing as well as somebody else it's just because you didn't work hard and I think that's you know what we are taught to believe but it's actually not the reality of this country. And that's really hard to reconcile, I think, for people. What does this mean that I'm successful? Does that take away from my success if I may have had different advantages over other folks just because of how I identify, how I identify? And that's that's hard to, to grapple with. And so I think people choose just not to. It's mm, a very good point. So I want to shift gears uh, and go on a, a slightly lighter note, um, considerably lighter. Uh, not all of our listeners may know that you, Beth, were a professional basketball player after playing at Harvard and are a member of the Connecticut Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. So, Beth, do you think that your hoops background has has informed your career as a professional and maybe even your current work? I, I read in a rather glowing feature on you from uh, the 1989 Harvard Crimson, in which it described a pretty significant knee injury you suffered in the beginning of your sophomore year. And, you know, we think a lot about resiliency in our work. And I'm curious if facing adversity early on helped you build a certain amount of resiliency that you think maybe you otherwise would not have had. That's a great question. And it's hard to know like if you like, do you have it, do you learn it? Maybe it's a combination of, of both. Um, I think almost, you know, as an athlete, almost every practice in every game, there's some adversity, right? So you are constantly dealing with, you know, having to push yourself, uh, being pushed by others. So, I mean, it's just, you know, I think part of the makeup. Um, and when I had my uh, knee surgery, I actually hurt my knee in high school, but back then it was the ancient days. So they didn't do a lot of the diagnostic stuff that they do now. So I had severed my ligament in high school and didn't know it. Um, and it wasn't until just before my sophomore year in college where we were practicing preseason and it went out and they, you know, had the tools to go in and take a look. And they said, you haven't had your ligament for like four years. Um, so I was fortunate to have been able to play that long without having a, a, a ligament. 
Um, and then when I was in college, the surgeon said, um, well, I guess you're done playing because you're not going to have surgery to fix this, right? And I said, well, why wouldn't I? He's like, well, you're a girl. What are you going to do after college? So why not just stop now? Which was ironic because there were several um, ice hockey players that had a similar injury and they were back on the ice before the season was over because ice hockey was so big and there was a possibility that they could be professional, that it was all about, you know, how do we get them back on the ice? And for me, because I was a woman and there wasn't a WNBA and it was like, well, what's she going to do anyway? It was like, oh, she's done. And I said, you know, whether I play or not doesn't matter, but I don't feel like I have stability. So if I ever have kids, I don't feel like I can run around and chase after them. So I, you know, I want my knee fixed for that reason. And if I'm fortunate enough to play, great. So that's certainly, you know, having to have that conversation and advocate for myself um, was, I think, helpful for me professionally. And just thinking about, you know, as I developed, being able to speak up uh, more for myself was important. Um, and then certainly having to go through the rehab. Um, and then again, you know, anytime, again, as I was saying earlier, when you're playing sports, I think almost every day with practices and games, you're facing adversity. So you don't even, you don't think twice about it. It's just something you know is going to happen and you figure out strategies to get through and at the end of the day, it, it works or it doesn't, but that's okay, right? You get up and you, you do it again. <laughs> right. Go to battle every day. Right. Wow. What a rude thing for that doctor to say to you. And that was only, what, 30 years ago or so. Yeah. But, it, it, you, know, it, it, you know, now we might say, oh, that was rude. It was inappropriate. But that's how people thought. Right. That was the, the common thinking. There wasn't, a, you know, many women didn't play professionally, period, let alone you know, basketball. So why not? Why go through the surgery? Why go through the rehab? Just, you know, be done and go on with your life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure, I guess. <laughs> um, so anyway, our last question, Beth, because we know we've uh, taken up a good amount of your time and we appreciate it. Knowing that you work a lot also, um, in addition to C-suite executives and and companies um, across the board, you also work with a number of young adults. And, and obviously, it's important to really have these conversations with young adults, young leaders, the next generation. We're curious to hear what you think the most important skills are that we can build in young leaders today. You know, I think a couple of the skills that I would say would be, I think resilience is one. And I do. And for me, I think that's just the ability when bad things happen to get back up uh, and, and not give up and not let that define who you are, which can be a really difficult um, lesson to learn, because I think in particularly depending on how people identify, there are so many messages out there, particularly for people of color, for women um, for folks who may be trans about how you don't matter, that when you face an obstacle, it's easy to then start believing that narrative. And so I think it is important for young people to understand that no one's perfect. We all make mistakes, but how we respond to that is more about how that, de who de how that defines us as opposed to the thing that happened defining us. So I think that's an important thing for people to, for particularly for young people to learn and understand. I think the second is to really find your passion. Um, there are so many 
things today that are telling us particularly about, you know, why material things matter. I have this conversation with my kids all the time, right? That, that you know, you watch videos, you watch shows, and there's often, uh, you know, this glorification of material stuff, right? The more expensive it is, the better it is, the more you have, the more you accumulate. Um, and it's hard to not pay attention to that. But I think it is important to understand that ultimately it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying, you know, it's not great to, to own a Tesla or a big house. Or I think those things are great, but that that shouldn't drive you. What really needs to drive you is internal motivation, um, because otherwise you're just going to constantly be chasing after because somebody's always going to have something better and something more. Right. And so how do you find that internal satisfaction um, and reward as opposed to feeling that you're going to get it by accumulating stuff? And I think that's you know a hard thing to learn, but really important. And the last thing which has been really important for me is to have faith. So I'm a, a been going to church since I was a little kid, and I have always been part of a, a church or faith community. And I have found that to be, for me, a, a place where I get solace and, and comfort. Um, and it doesn't have to be faith community for other people, but I think it is important to believe in something more than ourselves um, and to believe in this sense of, of, of humanity and connectedness uh, of, of human beings. Um, and if you think about how we are connected as humans, I think that that can help us make decisions that are really based in our own integrity, right? As opposed to if we're, you know, not thinking of, you know, humans as all connected, that we may make different decisions. And so I think that is important to really see the humanity in others and to think about what is that connection to ourselves and have that be in, in, in how we make decisions. Beth, I cannot think of a better place to end this conversation than on internal satisfaction and peace. And so we want to thank you very much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure um, getting this opportunity. You're welcome. Thank you again for having me. To our listeners out there, thanks for joining us for another episode of And Then Some. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss out on future conversations. And if you've enjoyed this conversation or previous episodes, let us know by leaving a review and following us on social media. Solomon McCowan Sensi on Instagram and at Solomon McCowan on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.